0: Three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends, everything happens for seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't Jeez. with some of these people. I Put mom, down your goddamn cell I tones. don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my but advice. seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. I've got a great episode in store for all of you where I'm joined by author... Guinness World Record solo pilot and keynote speaker Ryan Campbell, Ryan and I explore issues including what the experience of flying around the world alone for 70 days was like for a 19-year-old kid from Australia, all about Ryan's experience as the sole survivor of a devastating plane crash. Having been diagnosed as a complete paraplegic, how Ryan taught himself to walk again, and finally. Why starting with gratitude is always the key to navigating change. This is a different kind of episode than anything I've ever done on Nervous Habits before. It is inspiring and it's very moving. All that and a whole lot more on another edition of Nervous Habits. Hey everybody, I hope that everyone is doing great, is having a, you know, a great week, great month. I haven't really done this before. You know, this episode is gonna be slightly different because it's more of a of a profile rather than the usual, you know, let's talk about nutrition or addiction or sleep that all of you have become accustomed to on Nervous Habits, this is more of a chance for my guest um, to tell his story. And I don't know if this is be- going to become a regular type of episode on the pod, but Ryan is, is a young guy. He's, I think he's, he's younger than I am, but he's had so many incredible life experiences um, as he talks about the, the extreme highs and lows. And I just thought, you know, it, it wouldn't be right for us to just Talk about technology or or talk about human psychology together. Really, I think that Ryan, I wanted to give Ryan a platform to tell his story. Um, And in case you haven't heard of him, my guest Ryan Campbell made history as the youngest solo pilot to fly around the world. They called him Flying Ryan because in a single engine airplane, Uh, He actually covered 24,000 miles, 35 stops, and 15 countries in just 70 days. He was recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as the first teenager in history to fly the world solo. His critically acclaimed book about the journey was nationally celebrated, and Ryan was on top of the world until tragedy struck. Um, At 21, Ryan barely survived a devastating plane crash that changed his life. He had broken bones from head to toe. He spent five months in the hospital, followed by 18 months in rehab. Refusing to accept the doctor's paraplegic diagnosis, Ryan's fight to fly again fueled his painful yet triumphant recovery. And through his journey from record-setting victory to back-breaking defeat, he developed a systematic approach to navigating change and using adversity to fuel success. Ryan's courageous message is that our setbacks need not define us, but rather provide us an opportunity to soar literally and figuratively so uh as i said uh, a really tremendous story and we haven't had a guinness world record holder on the pod before so this is this is going to be the first one um i'm really excited for you to hear what he has to say and so without further ado my conversation with ryan ryan welcome to nervous habit thanks for having me it's my pleasure. Um, I, obviously we were just discussing a moment ago that these are very unusual times. How are you managing personally, professionally during the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: I think overall, honestly, Ricky, we're we're doing really well myself, and I've uh, my girlfriend's a Tennessee girl. Now we're now both based in Nashville. Uh, we've been really lucky just to kind of have a little bit of you know income still coming in, and although we live in a small unit. Uh, we have a hangar out at the airport that I can just get to and, and, and kind of sit out on our own and have some fresh air and even jump in the airplane and, and go and watch the sunrise or the sunset. So it's been, um from a personal point of view, we've been quite okay uh, in comparison to a lot of other people. From a professional point of view, uh, I'm a professional keynote speaker. So the events industry in itself has just literally dried up uh, almost overnight However, there is always a silver lining, and the silver lining is this unbelievable opportunity to uh, launch the virtual world probably a little bit earlier than what it was, uh, I suppose you could say, uh, set to come out. Someone has said the other day, 10 years, they believe. Uh, We've jumped the gun 10 years uh, in the virtual world thanks Mm. to COVID. But we are all uh, scrambling to come together and be able to offer something unbelievable in the form of virtual content. So from a professional point of view, we do have a virtual keynote studio and we have pivoted to that. So it's a bit of a pressure cooker, but that provides us an opportunity to push the boundaries and do something that we may not have done otherwise. So all in all, we're doing pretty well.
0: Absolutely. And, and I love I love the positive perspective that you're trying to take on this. I think that and people need to you know, sort of keep things, keep things, you know, uh, aligned with that mindset. And a minute ago, you mentioned that you have your own hangar and you've been trying to fly. I would imagine the skies right now are a little emptier than you're used to, right?
1: Oh, well and truly, well and truly. I have so many, you know, with a, I have a background as a commercial pilot. I have so many buddies uh, who work not only as pilots, but cabin crew or air traffic control. And, And unfortunately, the aviation industry has been one of the hardest hit, uh, for us to be able to jump in a little single-engine two-seat airplane and and just go for a fly, we we did yesterday morning. We got out of bed at twenty past four and found our way to the hangar and took off with another aircraft and we went and and uh, watched the uh, night turn into day, which is just a tremendous tremendous uh, privilege to be able to do. But uh, from our point of view, yeah, I mean it's they're empty skies, that's for sure.
0: That's beautiful. Did you did you just say twenty past four? You're talking about 4:20 a.m.
1: Yeah, we jumped up. By the time you get up and you know get to the airport and get the airplane out, and you have to do all your pre-flight checks, and you know jump in it and warm it up, and and by the time you you want to be at the end of that runway when that first glimmer of light starts to come above the horizon, ready to to take off as soon as you're uh, allowed.
0: Wow, I, I would imagine a lot of people listening who have been sleeping in with the COVID pandemic, you know, until 9, 10 in the morning, are li- are listening to this thinking. 4am you're waking up to to, you know to fly a plane i i I mean that that sounds that sounds like an incredible experience but (laughs) having to wake up that early man i don't know if i could do it
1: oh mate if you told me that i had to wake up that time to uh, record a podcast or go to work or go for a run i'd tell you to take a long walk off a short pier but it's (laughs) for us aviation and and that opportunity of knowing what it's like to be up there and see the world wake up before everyone else wakes up it's um it's worth it every now and then. Trust me, sunset flights are a whole lot easier on the body. Mm.
0: That's amazing. And in case my listeners don't know, I mentioned this in, in your introduction a few minutes ago. So Ryan actually holds a Guinness world record as the youngest solo solo pilot to fly around the world. So I guess the first question I want to ask you is, did you always want to be a pilot? And what, you know, initially drew you to the profession? I was, um, the short answer that to that is is basically
1: yes it's always been a passion of mine and I believe I'm uh, unbelievably lucky to have found a passion at such a young age and, and be given something that I loved something that I could uh, turn into goals and aspirations and something that kept me busy and broke um, if I'm honest but <laughs> when I was six years old my mom and my dad uh, and my two brothers two older brothers we all went on an overseas trip from Australia to a small island in the Pacific Ocean and That journey was our first overseas trip, but it was also my mum and dad's first overseas trip. And we spent a week at this little island. And it was, I mean, it was an unbelievable holiday for sure. But it was the flight there and the flight home that had me absolutely just mind blown as a six-year-old kid. I remember flying up through the clouds coming out of Sydney Airport. And as we broke through the top of the clouds at six years old, I remember thinking, what? Like, we can reach the clouds? And and <laughs> that was my moment to just be blown away. So I fell in love with aviation prior to September 11. We were allowed to walk up to the cockpit and meet the pilots and look at all the buttons and the switches. And from that day on, it was just a, a matter of fact that I would, would learn to fly an airplane at some point. Funnily enough, as I grew older, I discovered that my granddad, who had since passed on, had been a pilot. My uncle, uh, who at six years old, I really didn't have a lot to do with. He was a commercial pilot and not only did they fly, but my dad had always wanted to learn to fly. And, uh, it turns out that we all uh, went through that process of learning to fly together. My dad, uh, my brother and I,
0: yeah, that's so. That's that's actually that's a really wholesome experience. Um, I think you know that's almost something like like you would read about in a book. I think everyone can relate to having that first plane, you know, plane ride as a kid, looking, you know, looking out the window, watching, you know, watching the the plane soar up into the clouds, and uh, just being completely enamored and mystified with everything. And nowadays, I would imagine a lot of people don't even look out the windows; they kind of you know take it for granted. Do you ever, as as a pilot, do you ever get get tired of, you know, of of, uh, the experience of taking off or, you know, having that 10,000 foot view? I love taking off,
1: you know, and I think the easiest place to become complacent and bored with aviation is on an airliner. You know, the windows are small and you've just made your way all the way through an airport and security and you find yourself on the airplane, you're squished in next to someone and it's hard to get a glimpse of the outside world. I think in small aircraft, it's impossible to not be blown away every time you're in the air. It doesn't matter how many thousands of hours you've spent doing it. From an airline point of view, I always love the takeoff. Um, I just love it. I just think it's the most magical thing. And I think aviation in general is pretty magical. Unfortunately, the normality of commercial and especially low budget. I mean, there's only so many ways that you can enjoy an experience on, say, Frontier Airlines, but it's um, the whole world of kind of commercial aviation, budget flying has unfortunately taken a little bit of the that magic away and uh, mm. it's almost become a chore, which is a wild thing to think about when you, you really start to process it.
0: You know, it. it I, I definitely I, I agree with what you're saying there. But I also do think that the experience of flying in general as both a pilot and a passenger is very humbling and it's almost analogous to what astronauts experience when, you know, they they ascend to um, you know, to, to space. And then they look down at the earth and it gives them a sense of perspective as to how small, you know, we are as, as human beings relative to the greater universe. And I would imagine, you know, being in the stratosphere or the troposphere every single day and looking down and seeing how small the homes and the cars and the people and the forestry are that that's humbling. And it makes you think about your place in, in the world.
1: 100%. And I think that every time we Uh, have our feet uh, detached from the surface of the earth should be we all should be sitting there thinking that it should just be a uh, a big metal tube in the sky full of people (laughs) reflecting on life Um, but it's unfortunately it doesn't always fall that way but it should be and flying is an unbelievable opportunity to gain some serious perspective even from especially on the round the world flight uh, for me from that point of view seeing Uh, how small the world really is. It's one thing to get in a large metal tube, watch a few movies, and it's almost magic uh, that you Mm -hmm. would end up in a different country with different accents and, you know, a whole different way of life. However, during the the round-the-world flight, I would climb into my tiny single-engine airplane and I would take off, for example, from Reykjavik, Iceland, and then, you know, six or seven hours later, uh, after flying over water, I descend down through typical Scottish low cloud and rainy uh, weather to see a castle and some green rolling hills. And it had only been six or seven hours earlier that I was looking at a glacier. That for me, spe- specifically that leg, to be honest, was just a eye opening, mind blowing moment to realize how small the world is.
0: I mean, for sure, for sure, Ryan, I want to I want to pick your brain about the around the world flight in a moment. But just before we do there, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who, you know, maybe at one point dreamed about being a pilot, but never really you know, uh, got the nudge in that direction or, or committed to it, just how difficult is it? I, it's hard to generalize, but how difficult is it to actually go through the process of learning to fly a plane relative to, you know, most other occupations, rel- you know, relative to driving, relative to maybe driving a boat, um, you know, other uh, similar fields, you know, how, just how difficult is it, Ryan?
1: It's really not difficult. To be honest, I think most pilots want you to think it's difficult because that makes for a better barroom story, but it's not. It, huh. I think operating an airplane, I mean, there's so many different types and there's so many different types of flying and whether it's a helicopter or a fixed wing aircraft or whatever, they're all simply a machine that uh, require a whole bunch of processes and practice in order to be able to master. So if you go down to your local flight school, and this is what I encourage Anyone listening who has any inkling of wanting to learn a flight to do, go down to your local flight school, jump on Google, look up where the closest one is, go down there and pay them maybe 150 or $200, $250, maybe $100, and you can do what is called a trial instructional flight, which is maybe 30, 40 minutes up in the air with a flying instructor, an opportunity for you to actually grab hold of that uh, control stick or yoke and start to steer the plane around the sky and have your first lesson. Once you have experienced that you'll see that it is simply an hour at a time that you go back and learn some more skills and you get better and better and more competent and more competent and people will they really don't believe it but around the 10 hour mark some people even at 8 hours but 10 hours 12 14 hours that flying instructor will get out of that machine and you will go and fly it on your own and you will fly solo which i promise you is one of the coolest things in the whole wide world so you might not go on to be a commercial pilot. You might not go on to pilot a space shuttle or do this or do that. But just going to to fly an airplane solo for a few thousand dollars uh, is a life-changing experience. So that, I would recommend I, that to everyone.
0: I love that. I love that. And I can imagine it's it's so empowering too to be up there in the sky with complete control of your destiny. There must be like a great metaphor there. Um, But, you know, Ryan, you, you weren't complacent with just being – an airline pilot or, you know, just another, just another pilot, you really wanted to to do something special. And so what prompted you at the age of 19 to want to fly around the world alone, as you said, in, an, in a single engine airplane?
1: My, my mom and dad would tell you that I'm never happy with anything. I always want the next thing, the next big thing. And they would say that in such a loving way, by the way, in <laughs> the very beginning of learning to fly, I was A young kid who wanted to fly aeroplanes, right? It's all I knew. Common sense said to me that I would at least have to have a driver's license, which in Australia to drive on your own is 17 years old. But I would also need some money to be able to pay for it. I I figured it was very expensive to fly aeroplanes. So I decided that I would go all the way through my high school years. I would come out at about 18 years old and I would learn to fly. I'd get a job, have some money in the bank, and I'd spend that on flying lessons. When no. I was uh, 14 years old, I sat down for some reason and I opened up the local newspaper, which I never did as a 14-year-old kid. And I was just flicking through the newspaper and I saw a picture of a kid standing next to an aeroplane. And the article was all about the fact that he had flown that aeroplane solo for the first time on his own on his 15th birthday, wow. 15th birthday. And I was just oh, envious, jealous. I was just in awe. I was shocked that that was even legal, uh, let alone achievable. So how old
0: how old were, how old were you, Ryan, when you saw the fifteen-year-old when you were reading that article?
1: I was fourteen in my early, you know, in early in the year of being fourteen. So got gotcha. I had this maybe it was meant to be. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I had this kind of hey, if he can do it, why can't I? Uh, approach uh, to the article, and I uh, set the goal. I, I want to fly an airplane solo on my 15th birthday. And I found a job washing semi trailer trucks on the weekend. And I found a job uh, at a supermarket after school three days a week for an hour and 45 minutes each session. My generous boss would pay me for two hours. I'd get off the school bus, I'd do an hour and 45 minutes, and my parents would pick me up. And I had enough money every two weeks to do a flying lesson. And on my 15th birthday, I climbed into an airplane all on my own and I went and flew it solo. And that started this passion for wanting to do everything at the youngest possible age, which eventually led to being a 17-year-old kid who decided that I wanted to channel the pioneering aviators of yesteryear. I wanted to do something bigger and more like life is short. What can I do to go out? I just want to experience it all. I want to be passionate. I want to be driven. I want to go and do something. That no one has ever done before. I didn't want to live the normal day-to-day life. I wasn't Mm -hmm. interested in drinking. I mean, Australian, you know, we're known for it. At 18 years old, you can legally drink. (laughs) And at 17, everyone's out drinking. And I didn't want to do it. I wanted to fly airplanes and I wanted to do something big. I wanted to leave a mark. And that started this wild, big journey journey of uh, planning a round the world adventure.
0: Wow. I mean, I I love, I love these little vignettes that you have about like, you know, being a kid and setting those goals, because I I think a lot of people might, might have had those moments, but they, they don't have the drive or the initiative to actually see them through, right? Like, you know, they watch something on TV, like, oh, I'd love to be a pilot or, you know, I want to be just like that guy and and the astronaut, but most people just, you know, get distracted or, or, you know, don't have the, um, the mental fortitude to actually persevere. So it is incredible that you stuck with it. Um, and when you actually went about, uh, flying the world, how long, you know, how long did the process take? And do you have any, any sort of highlights from your journey?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, first off, I'll say that I don't think a lot of people pursue, uh, or find pursuing challenges easy because they're not passionate about it. Ricky, I can't make my bed in the morning. (laughs) You know, I grew up in a household that was always get up and make your bed. And I find that a struggle because I'm not passionate about it. I'm not, it's, it's, it's not easy to me. Whereas planning around the world flight, I will not say it was easy, but it was my passion and that made it an easier journey than if it was something that I was being forced to do. Uh, The planning of the flight itself. Now my dad was the milkman and a truck driver and my mum was a stay at home mum. We are just a normal Aussie family. Um, And I was a normal Aussie kid anymore, laid back, I'll be lying down. And we spent two years uh, bringing a team together, fundraising a quarter of a million dollars on a laptop computer, uh, Mm -hmm. renting a single engine airplane, covering it in sponsor stickers, planning (laughs) and preparing and training as a 17 year old, 18 year old pilot. And at 19 years old, I climbed into that single-engine airplane around about Sydney in Australia, and I started what was to be a 70-day trip around the world. So 24,000 nautical miles to 34 different destinations in 15 countries. Uh, I took a single-engine airplane that was designed to fly uh, around about five hours before it ran out of fuel. I put a 160-gallon bag of uh, fuel in the back seat so in the cockpit with me i was leaning almost up against this bag of fuel Mm. and uh, i had an aircraft that could then fly 17 16 and a half or 17 hours non-stop it's a four-seat airplane so it's no different than your small cessna that you would learn to fly in i took off from sydney i headed northeast over the pacific ocean so a whole number of stops island hopping grabbing fuel everywhere i could Uh, I went through the intertropical convergence zone, which is a band of bad weather moves up and down around the equator, depending on the time of the year. Uh, Between Christmas Island and Hawaii, I went through a storm that went from sea level to 60,000 feet. And at 19 years old, I didn't even know storms could go to 60,000 feet. Uh, Mm. And I diverted 180 miles right of track just to get around the edge of the core of the storm. Uh, If we had gone through the middle, it would have been the end of it all. Uh, We ended up in Hawaii, uh, facing not only the end of that leg through the thunderstorm but facing the longest trip of the whole entire journey which was 2150 odd miles from Hawaii to California all over water the longest overwater ferry leg in the world and uh, 15 hours of nonstop flying uh, just to get to mainland USA from Hawaii so that was the first leg into uh North America
0: okay so I hope you'll forgive my naivete here but when you say it was a seventy day trip and you mentioned you know you at one point you were t- flying for fifteen hours straight how much of that how much of that seventy days were you in the air was it you know every day you would fly and then stop in one of these fifteen countries, or was it more fly for a few hours stop fly for a few hours stop what you know what was your like day to day
1: it was one leg on average it was one leg every two days so mm-hmm the bag of fuel that was in the back of the aircraft was actually strapped to the floor of the aircraft with big straps that you would put a car on a trailer with. Um, It was a very kind of complex design that took a really long time to fill the bag of fuel and prepare the airplane. Once you'd filled that bag of fuel up, you couldn't use the step on the back of the aircraft. Otherwise it would tip up in the air Uh, because of the weight. You had to be very careful with that aircraft, how you packed it, how you prepared it for the next leg. So what we did Uh, knowing that this was not a race, we would fly one day and then we would have the next day off. So what that allowed is the day off wasn't really ever a day off. It was uh, a number of hours at the aircraft preparing it, refueling it, repacking it. Plus it was looking at the logistics of the next leg, looking at the flight plan, how were we going to go about it? How far was the leg? Where were we flying? How was the political situation? Where we were headed? How... Mm -hmm. Did the overflight and landing clearances look at that point in time? Uh, How did the aircraft look from a maintenance point of view? Making sure that this was, you know, 34, 35 odd legs around the world, not just one big trip. Every leg was an A to B leg and they just happened to link up all the way around the world. That's how we managed to keep it safe. So about 180 hours in the air total flying one long leg every second day.
0: Were you were you sleeping a lot? Did you get, you know, did you get tired? What was your, you know, what was your like physiological state like for most of it? Well, you couldn't sleep obviously
1: in the aircraft. I was in the airplane on my own. I had oh, yeah? the life raft strapped to the seat <laughs> next to me, but um other than that, you know, we I was in the airplane on my own, so you could not sleep. You know, I had to fly that airplane the whole time and transfer fuel and I had to be awake. So the really long legs, they were hard long days which really Made the day off uh, in between those legs unbelievably important for safety. As for time on the ground, it depended where it was. Uh, the North American crossing, I suppose you could say, just to go from coast to coast here in the states up into Canada, that was fantastic. You know, it's you, you just find places uh, to eat easily and sleep easily, and people just wanted to help and they spoke English and. But when we found ourselves, say, in Greece and Jordan and Oman and Sri Lanka, all these other places that were so unbelievably foreign to me as an Australian kid, that was pretty tiring, I will say. Even just getting fuel, we ended up having 13 people help us refuel the airplane in Jakarta in Indonesia. It took five hours to refuel it out of drums. So it really depended on where well, we were in the world.
0: So you said you were in the air for was it 180 hours? About 170,
1: 180 hours total to go all the way. And
0: around. you were you were completely by yourself. Did you ever did you ever get lonely? <laughs>
1: um, I don't compare it to. I have a lot of adventurer buddies who have uh, sailed so solo, solo around the world, and they spend almost six or nine months, you know, at sea on their own. So it's definitely not that type of isolation at all. Um, it's just tiring. So to spend those long legs in such a small confined space is tiring to be given all the duties every day. You know, you're not just a pilot, but you have to do all of the flight plans. You have to organize, you know, what you're going to eat on those long legs and where you're going to sleep and the logistics of just moving everything, managing the maintenance, just managing the red tape legalities and the clearances was almost, you know, a full-time job in itself. So it was not so much lonely, but just a long, hard slog. Some days to just keep moving.
0: What year was this? Just to contextualize it for listeners.
1: It was 2013. So I was 19 years old, 2013.
0: Okay, so this is okay. So this is recent because you mentioned a minute ago. You talked about political situations and the different culture. What was going on? So you know, pretty recently, I'm wondering if you had. You know, like like uh, music or any any technology, maybe a podcast you could listen to. Um, what you know, what if you had anything available to like entertain you, or if you couldn't even do that in the air because you needed to focus on on flying. I definitely had music.
1: I definitely did. And that was for me, even flying day to day yesterday morning, watching the sunrise, you know, we have a Bose headset that allows you to to play music through it and, you know, taking off and landing and talking to other aircraft or air traffic control. Obviously you don't have that on, but when you're out just cruising about, you can have your music on. So I definitely used it to give some context to that. The Hawaii to California leg was so unbelievably frightening with headwinds and fuel that I did not listen to a single song for 15 hours. So that was constantly uh, calculating fuel, calculating headwinds, trying to find weather forecasts, being a thousand miles from anywhere, uh, any land in any direction in this single engine airplane. That was a very high stress situation. So but, in the moments where I was sitting back uh in between my jobs that I had every fifteen minutes, I would definitely listen to music podcasts not so much at that point in time, but um, <laughs> if I went now, I'm I would ima- definitely have podcasts for sure
0: yeah I'm imagining you listening to like Josh Groban. you raised me up i I, I don't know what uh or, or, or are you more of like or were you more of like a rap guy no
1: i'm I live in Nashville, I'm the biggest country music fan on planet earth. <laughs>
0: love that i love that um so obviously you know you came back to australia you were a national hero they they aired the 60 minute special and everyone started calling you Fly and Ryan, right
1: they did Ab- yes i'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but that's what happened so
0: <laughs> and um what was funny was that you actually told me on our call last month that you f- that you found someone after that had started catfishing as you on tinder and in oh, case you don't man. know <laughs> catfishing uh listeners don't know it's when someone essentially poses as another person on a dating app so what happened there oh look ricky i'm no
1: oil painting all right like i have an accent (laughs) which helps me in america but i'm no oil painting and never did i think someone would steal my photo for for a tinder picture on a dating app but that's what happened and we had uh, a friend of my girlfriend at the time she sent a picture through saying, Hey, your boyfriend's on uh, Tinder. And it turns out it wasn't me. (laughs) And we ended up contacting this guy and, it was a very awkward yet humorous stage of life. I was very flattered, to be honest. It's probably one of my biggest compliments.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I mean, it's funny. I, I, I said to you uh, last month, but that's really how you know you've made it in life, when you can look on Tinder and be like, wait, someone is masquerading as me. I, I haven't had that experience, but maybe a if I'm million lucky million at A million
1: percent. Meet the Royals, absolutely not. You know, get <laughs> awards, absolutely none of that matters. If you've been catfished, you've made it sit back and have a drink, celebrate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, so obviously, you know, the next couple of years you were, uh, doing some press talking about your experience before, you know, before we talk about what you went through with the, with the plane crash, what was, you know, what was your life like day to day after you completed the around the world trip?
1: It was good. And I, I think that is as a keynote speaker on navigating change, we talk about change and in order to experience change you have to have a before state and an after state my before state was really good and the experience of flying around the world yeah sure it was hard and, and I found myself halfway around the world just wanting to be home and and you know all the different ups and downs that adventure brings but when I arrived home life it was it was challenging in the beginning to be honest a bit of athletes drop in a way that that kind of high life just comes to a screaming halt what do you do the day that the, you wake up and you're at home and you have nowhere to fly. So it was hard for a little while. But as a general overview, you know, I did uh, go on to, you know, meet Prince William and meet Prince Harry and Buzz Aldrin and, you know, experience at ward ceremonies. And I was named one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers. Just this wild stuff that a normal Aussie kid never thought was possible. I was asked to speak uh, frequently and i would uh, jump on the australian speaking circuit and travel around and share my story uh my life honestly honestly it was really good it was a a wild roller coaster of uh experiencing moments that i never imagined i ever would uh even writing a book sharing born to fly uh watching other people react to uh that book and the story within it and watching the message spread and the inspiration spread long after the round the world flight had ended.
0: Yeah, I, I can see just how you know that would be received so well. I mean, your story a- has been incredibly inspiring. We haven't even gotten to what you went through afterwards. So, a couple of years after this this tremendous feat, you suffered a devastating plane crash. Uh, you were 21. Are you comfortable, you know, speaking with me and, and with listeners about that for a couple of minutes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean. As an overview, I, I was a young kid um, out the back of the round-the-world flight with a whole bunch of opportunity at my feet. And one of those opportunities was to work, to work for Qantas, my dream airline. And since I was six years old, that dream of flying for an airline was to fly for our Australian carrier Qantas, the kangaroo on the tail, you know. And <laughs> it, um, I was offered a job through Qantas after a speaking engagement. I was offered a job. And Ricky, I said, no, I didn't want the job. I appreciated it. I wanted it, but I wanted to defer it. I wanted to fly old aeroplanes. I wanted to be uh, building experience flying unique aircraft in the hope to one day fly a World War II Spitfire. And I do not regret that decision whatsoever. Uh, It was the right decision. And I went on to fly old aeroplanes. And that happened to be the old aeroplane that we had an engine failure in and subsequently a very bad accident.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, obviously it's that's a truly unfortunate experience you went through, but in a lot of ways it defined, you know, what what came next in your life and, you know, people talk about near-death experiences a lot and um the sensations of viewing the scene around, um, you know, sort of like floating up and viewing the scene around your body, what was the experience of of surviving a serious plane crash like that for you?
1: Well, I mean, to give context to the accident, to everyone listening, we were flying a 1930s vintage biplane. My job was to fly that airplane up and down the coast of Australia to do some aerobatics. Uh, I was in a great position uh, flying a beautiful airplane and it was a two-seater aircraft. So I would sit in the back seat, someone would sit in front of me and we'd go fly. A tremendous job. This one morning was just a normal day at work. No oceans to cross, no records to break. And the gentleman who was flying with me was also a pilot, very nice man. And we talked for a long time. We jumped in the airplane and we took off. What happened was as the runway disappeared beneath the nose of the aircraft, the engine failed and it failed at an unbelievably low level. We, I pushed the nose down, uh, as you are trained to do immediately. But I had seconds to find a place that wasn't trees and below us was uh, trees. I did everything I could in those few seconds to avoid terrain. But what resulted was a horrendous uh, plane crash. I was cut from the wreckage and taken to hospital. And I was the only survivor. It was a moment that I remember because I was conscious the entire time. I blacked out as they moved the stretcher across the rough ground to put me in the helicopter because of the pain. But once I was back in the helicopter, I was conscious again and and I was throughout until they operated on me. I had five breaks in my back, shattered face, shattered ankle, and I had a spinal cord injury at L1 and uh, I was diagnosed a complete paraplegic. So that moment in the... The moment in... I didn't have that experience that everyone talks about, you know, this whole, you know, near death experience. My near death realization came over a year and a half after my accident. In the moment, it was sheer shock. And I explain it. The only way I can explain it is I was at mental capacity. You could have walked up to me and told me anything. You could have walked up to me and broken my other legs. You could have, you could have done anything to me and I could not have computed it. It would not have changed the way that I was feeling in the moment, I was at genuine mental capacity.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I I, I cannot even imagine how devastating that experience would be like and, and was like for you. You know, you mentioned you were diagnosed a complete paraplegic. You had broken bones. Did you say facial um, facial reconstruction as well?
1: I did. I I had uh, titanium put. Uh, head to toe, so from my face all the way down to uh,
0: my ankle and uh, in my back I mean you know, having been through that what what kept you going? How did you stay motivated you know to to keep living your life? forget being a pilot i mean a lot you know a lot of people go through that and and you know they they find it tough to get out of bed in the morning, so what was your perspective on life after being the sole survivor in that
1: plane Ridge. crash? made it, it's not about forgetting to be a pilot because being a pilot was what got me through it. You know, Mm. I wanted to, I was on a journey back to the cockpit. I knew that what happened to us that day, the devil himself couldn't have failed that engine at a worse time. 20 seconds later, 10 seconds earlier, I would have been fine. We both would have been fine. But that's just not how it happened that day. And I continue to fly fixed wing airplanes and helicopters and I put people in them and we go fly and we have so much fun. And I would not do that if I thought that what happened that day, uh, you know, was likely to happen again. So I found myself in hospital and sure for the first little while I didn't want to touch an airplane. I didn't want to talk about it. I was struggling beyond struggling. But as I started to find myself, you know, permanently in a spinal rehabilitation in hospital and realizing that what I was up against was not a physical challenge, but a mental challenge, I knew that I needed to set goals. I needed a place to go. I needed a destination, a resolution, a solution. What was that end goal for me? That was flying. It wasn't walking. Walking was merely a stepping stone on the way back to flying. And I say that, uh, and I said it then, unbelievably, I was so naive. You know, I had a complete paraplegic diagnosis. They built me a purple wheelchair. I shouldn't have walked at all. And if I had have severed that spinal cord completely, I would never have walked again, no matter how hard I fought for it. But I was at this point where the damage did start to recover over time. And what it needed in order to recover to my full potential was a really, really strong mindset. And waking up every day and and going to spinal rehabilitation gym or chatting with a psychologist or learning... You know how to drive a wheelchair and then go on to you know, transition to transfer into a car and to drive a car and to find normality amongst the chaos became my everyday goal because I knew that all of these things would lead to the day that I somehow, I didn't know how, but somehow was back behind the controls of an airplane flying it around the sky because that was always what I was meant to do. And it was always going to be something that was part of my life. So it was flying that gave me that. It was the passion that I talked about earlier, that passion to want to get back to where I was, uh, that gave me the purpose and drive to be my best, you know, almost every day.
0: That's beautiful. I think I think most people in your position probably would have been too afraid of of the risk of you know to ever go near a plane. They, they would have been battling, I would imagine, PTSD. I don't, I don't know if you experienced anything like that hundred percent, a hundred million percent, but we have to, you
1: know, we win and lose life above the shoulders, mate. We just do, you know, if spinal cord injuries, five breaks in your back, shattered face and shattered ankle can still be a mental challenge. Then that really says something about how important our mindset and our way of thinking uh, is to everyday life. And you know what? There was part of me that could have said I didn't want to get in an airplane, but no, because I'd analyze the accident. For more hours than any man ever should and I had gone over every single thing that happened every second I had spoken to people I had looked at the likelihood of you know experiencing what we did I had looked at the likelihood of it ever happening again and I knew to my core the although the gut reaction made me, oh I don't ever want to do that again and to run away scared that's just not the right mindset the right mindset is to make an educated decision to zoom out onto the big picture to look at what your options are to lock one in and start to get to work on it and my big picture was that I wanted to get back to flying my decision was that you know that was what I was going to do and uh, whatever it took and then it was a matter of zooming in and getting back to work and getting to work was the everyday sessions in the gym and the research on how do you you know, regain your medical certificate, uh, speaking to people, bringing a team around you, making sure everyone was aware of your end goal, making sure they're all headed in the right direction. That from the very beginning was the mindset we needed to do it. And I did not ever want to fall into the uh, easy option of, you know, running away and doing something else because that's just, that's just not what we should do in a time of, you know, crisis or change or adversity.
0: For sure. And all this happened to, you know, give listeners a little sense of the timeline. All this happened when you were 21, because you mentioned you were 19 in 2013. So this was in 2015 when, when the plane crash occurred, you were 21?
1: Yeah. So I turned 22 in hospital. And for me, it took a while. Uh, but I had a realization that led to what I do every day today is a job and a passion. And that is that I had an opportunity to compare at 21 years old uh, and 22 years old the most unbelievable highs. I mean, and I was just a normal Aussie kid standing face-to-face with Prince William talking about adventure and aviation. <laughs> and, you know, that had been one of the highs. I'd seen the world in ways that people would, I oh, was just a normal kid, I had a big dream and we made it happen. And to have gone from that high to... Lying in bed as a sole survivor and pilot of a plane wreck where you're now told you'll never walk again, I'd been given an unbelievable high and a gut wrenching load to compare higher than what most people ever experience and lower than what most people ever experience. And I knew that was an opportunity because I was able to see at such a young age where we learn our lessons from, what uh, crafts us into the people that we are, how do we develop a mindset. You know, where do we find our tools? And I discovered very quickly that it's the challenging parts of our life, the adversity, the crisis, the challenges, that provide us a learning opportunity. It's not the high moments in life.
0: Exactly. It's it's not. It's like that old that old uh, you know truism. Like it's not how you fall. It's it's what you do when you get up. I think I think I'm sort of butchering it. It's not what happens when you fall. It's it's how you push yourself to yeah, get back it's, up. It's,
1: fault and responsibility, you know, and all this, there's so many different ways to word the same thing. And that's what I love. Like people find it frustrating sometimes that motivational videos or, you know, speakers or, you know, books or whatever, say the same seven things, but they just frame them in a different way. Well, that's a good thing because what it does is it proves to us how strong and how truthful those little sayings are, those ways of thinking we all reframe them in a slightly different way because it's the unique framing that allows certain people to connect and therefore adopt and live by those same seven or so really, you know, and there's not seven, whatever the number is, you know, those same kind of truisms, as you call them, that we all should live our life
0: by. Mm. And and how long were you um, how long were you a paraplegic for? Because you mentioned you celebrated your 22nd birthday in the hospital. So, how long did it take before you were able to, to walk again?
1: So, I spent uh, this is a, a big debate. You know, it's not a debate, it's just something that a lot of people don't understand. Um, there's two types of paraplegic diagnosis one is complete, one is incomplete. And it actually has nothing to do with your ability to walk, believe it or not. It has to do with certain muscles in your body and the way that your spinal cord is damaged. So in the beginning, I was a complete paraplegic. Uh, That was no movement or feeling below my waist, below L1. I spent six months in hospital and a year and a half in rehabilitation. And it was during the latter time in hospital that I started to see a little bit of movement, a little bit of, you know, a twitch here and a flicker here and a little bit of sensation pop up here. And it was... A very slow journey to my body starting to wake up. I spent, by the time I left hospital, I was on very crookedly, uh, on crutches, uh, for small distances, but in the wheelchair mainly the year and a half of rehab took me from that position to on crutches regularly to then this kind of runway ready. I drank too many Tennessee whiskey kind of strut <laughs> that I have going for me. Um, it took a good you know year to be in that state. So what I am now on paper is an incomplete paraplegic, and there's a whole range of you know very boring ways that they categorize paraplegics. But um, out of the four categories that there are now, I'm the third best, as you would may say. It has a lot to do with damage internally uh, to your bodily systems and a whole bunch of things that go wrong that people don't see from the outside.
0: So are you able to, you know, is your mobility restricted? Do you, do you require assistance? Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, so from my point of view, my feet don't work very well. Um, they don't really, I have no push in them, so I can't stand up on my toes. I have very, they're very weak. Uh, my walking is on my heels all day, every day. I have no calf muscles. The calf muscle is there, but it's not connected to the brain. Uh, it's still severed in that spinal cord. So, I have no calf muscles. I have no uh, glute muscles. I have no feeling where I sit, anywhere on the backs of my legs or my feet. I can feel the front of my legs now, which is nice, and uh, the top of my feet. So a whole bunch of sensation and function issues from the waist down, a lot of strength issues, and all my internal systems, uh, you know, which we use every day, um, don't work. So I have adapted basically Uh, to a new way of living and um, I can tell you it's perfectly fine where it's phenomenal what a human can adapt to when they're not given the choice uh, to do otherwise.
0: Absolutely. And you you hear that same thing from folks who have been diagnosed, you know, with with all sorts of um, other disabilities, whether it be, you know, uh, partial blindness, deafness, things like that is is just how adaptable the human body is. Uh, But I want to go back to a moment, you know, a moment ago you said you were diagnosed as a complete paraplegic in the hospital and you were told you would never walk again. So people listening are probably thinking, you know, if they were in that position, they wouldn't, they would find it difficult to find the motivation to go through a year and a half of rehab, given that completely desolate prognosis. So what, what pushed you in in, in the face of that diagnosis? What, what motivated you to want to learn to walk?
1: Well, I remember that everyone was so worried about me from a mental point of view. And, I wasn't on what you would say called suicide watch, but I was being watched all day, every day. I had family members in those beginning weeks sit in with me at night. I was a mess. I couldn't move any part of my body. I was broken head to toe and very, very, very unwell. From that point on, I was challenging myself to say, okay, well, how how am I going to get through this? I didn't know, but I was asking myself the question. I was listening to the people around me. I remember one day wheeling my wheelchair to meet my mum in a cafe in the hospital to have some breakfast. And I met my mum there and I looked at her and I said, mum, I realise how I'm going to get through this. And her eyes lit up and she thought I'd discovered some kind of, you know, had my little moment and you know, I was going to be okay. And I said, mum, I'm going to harden up. And I didn't say it that politely, but I said, I'm really going to harden up, toughen up. That's how I'm going to get through this. There is no easy you know, solution to this. I have to be tough. And from that point on, my mindset changed and I was given an opportunity to fight, an opportunity to make the decision. Was I going to fight? Was I going to work hard? Was I going to operate to my maximum potential every day, whatever that is? Or was I going to give up and just accept the diagnosis and accept a new way of life? And that still would have worked out for me. I'm sure I would have been okay. You know, I would live a life. I just, it wouldn't be the life that I live now. There's a lesson uh, that I was provided on the last day of hospital, actually, that I think every single human uh, on the planet and therefore everyone listening can apply. I had a guy called Paul, uh, Paul de Gelder. He was an Aussie guy. He met me at the hospital, and I wheeled the wheelchair down to a cafe. And I was sitting talking to Paul, and we got to chatting about life and uh, where I was at mentally and whatever. And Paul looked at me and he said three words that changed my life. He said "sink or swim." And when I looked at Paul, I realized I didn't need to ask anything else. Those three words had all the impact uh, that they needed because Paul was missing an arm and he was missing a leg, and he'd been a navy clearance diver in Sydney Harbour and had been attacked by a shark and lost that arm and that leg. And I knew at one point in Paul's life, he really had to make the decision to swim. Literally, he had to swim that day and he'd chosen that. And now he was a physically fit, very successful guy who had taken his situation, leveraged it and found himself living a really remarkable life. Because of his story, those three words, sink or swim just had a everlasting impact on me, better than any psychologist session, better than anything I'd been given. So I made the dec- decision to swim, and I think it's unbelievably important for anyone facing challenge, tri- you know, crisis, some form of trial or adversity to make the decision to swim. you don't have to know where you're going to end up. You don't have to know what the end goal is. That's where this three-step checklist to navigating change, crisis, challenge and adversity that I speak about On almost a daily basis that's where that checklist came in it's a way to place yourself in a more mentally change and challenge ready mindset to look at the situation you're coming up against three steps gratitude confidence and resilience to dive in and say I need to find gratitude in whatever the problem is I'm facing I found gratitude in the fact that I was a paraplegic instead of a quadriplegic you know I found something to be thankful for I worked through that checklist and I started to swim. So all I can say is in the face of those moments, you know, don't sit stagnant because if you sit stagnant for long enough, you'll start to sink. You just will.
0: I, I couldn't have said it better myself. That was, that was so beautifully and immaculately put. And I think that what's particularly inspiring, Ryan, is when you, you know, when you talk about gratitude, I think that so many people take for granted just being able to wake up every day and open their eyes and see the, the the colors and the vivacity of the world around them, and to be able to get out of bed and walk to the bathroom, and to be able to brush their teeth with their arms because people like Paul obviously can't do that. To be able to to sit down and feel the sensations in you know in their legs and in their glutes, um, to be able to eat and drink, and I think stories like yours and lessons like you know having having starting with gratitude, and I think really shows people that that even if – however significant you think the magnitude of your problems are, there's still so much to be grateful for. And I love the message of starting with gratitude and never taking for granted that you have these basic abilities that you know lots of people don't. 100%. And
1: I'll say – I will say because I think it's important to every listener out there. What we do with the three-step checklist and navigating changes, we provide three simple steps that allow you to, again, place yourself in a more change-and-challenge-ready mindset. At the end of the day, as we said earlier, again, life is one lost above the shoulders. How can you take uh, your current situation and your current mindset and make sure that it is as strong as it can be so that you can operate to your maximum potential every day? We do that. Through gratitude, confidence, and resilience, as we just said, find gratitude, find something to be thankful for. The day that I stared into a quadriplegic's eyes when I was in the uh, spinal rehabilitation gym, I was trying to roll over. I was stuck. I was in pain. Everyone was watching me, and I looked up into this guy's eyes. His name was Ben. He was in his early 30s, mopping his girlfriend's floor, slipped over, hit his head, full quadriplegic, no movement, no feeling from his chest down. When I looked into Ben's eyes, I realized in that moment what he would have given for one chance at rolling over. And you can tell I'm passionate about this story because I get worked up and I speak faster. But that moment of realizing that I needed to focus on what I had, not what I'd lost. I needed to realize that every challenge I came up against was an opportunity to quit, but every challenge was an opportunity to adapt. I had to realize that there is something to be thankful for in every mountain that I'm faced with. And finding that Uh, gratitude allows that mountain to shrink and allows you to work through what you're up against with far more ease changes your entire perspective confidence the next step once you've found gratitude is to be confident in your ability to get through whatever you're up against whatever that mountain is be confident in your ability to climb it the way that you do that is not to worry about uh the entire process don't worry about how this is going to become a resolution, solution, or end goal. Just know that you need to lock in the next step. Just find out the next step and get to work. Once you're locking that next step, you've got something to do. You remove the excuses. You find momentum. Once you've locked in the next step and you're working, the third step is resilience. Be resilient. Understand that your ability to get from here to the end goal is going to be tough. Like, mate, life isn't easy. It's just not. We've all experienced adversity, we will all experience more. By understanding that, by looking uh, ahead at your journey from where you are to where you want to be, and understanding that there's obstacles along the way, and that you will have to jump left or right to get around them, those obstacles will not shock you when they arrive, and they will merely become part of the process. So once you're thankful, once you're confident in your ability just to get to work, lock in the next step... And once you come to grips with the fact that it's going to be a somewhat tough journey, your mindset changes completely. I just 100% wanted to make sure people understand that because that is a catalyst for everything I've ever achieved and overcome. And it was learned a really hard way. Like I'm telling you a really hard way. And I don't want anyone out there, and this is what I do what I do on a day-to-day basis, I don't want you to have to experience what I experienced to have those three little steps, those three little tools in order to then overcome whatever you come up against in life.
0: No, that's brilliant. And it, and it is a perfect segue to the last, you know, thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is the lesson, the lessons that, that you took away from these incredible highs and lows, uh, you know, the high of traveling around the world as the youngest solo traveler and the low of, you know, uh, surviving that plane crash and, um, learning to walk again in terms of how it puts your problems in perspective every day and, and, you know, in terms of overcoming adversity. Because I think that for most people, you know, they get flustered if their toilet doesn't flush or if the cashier charges them twice for, for the bread at the supermarket. So how does what you went through put your day-to-day problems like like those into perspective? It puts it into
1: perspective – but I have this unbelievably strong belief that adversity or challenges and crisis, all the things we experience as humans, uh, we're not allowed to compare them. This isn't a competition. You know, There's somebody out there who's experienced some terrible, terrible things, but the way that they feel is exactly the same as a six-year-old kid who falls over and grazes his knee. What is common throughout the entire, uh, whether it's your six-year-old kid or whether it's a you know, gentleman who's been to war or a lady who's been to war or whether it's you know, a 60-year-old CEO facing up against a, you know, record loss or whatever it is that we're experiencing, the tools that we used to overcome it, uh, they're common. You know, the way that you word to your six-year-old kid that you're going to be okay, mate, like you're going to be okay and, you know, you'll, you'll feel better and it's not going to hurt tomorrow and like all those different things that we provide to that six-year-old kid are basically the same tools reworded that we provide to that CEO or that veteran or it's unbelievably important to know that the mindset and the tools you have within your own mindset toolbox they are the ticket to overcoming all of these challenges so although yes perspective is a powerful thing and and I wake up some days and and get mad at myself and find gratitude find thankfulness realize that you know I haven't really good. you know this isn't there are so many people out there with it worse. I don't allow that to belittle anyone else's challenges. Uh, I can use it to help me through my day, but I can't look at someone with less of a challenge than what I have and belittle what they're experiencing. I have to make sure that we support them and and help them provide their own tools and mindsets to work through whatever their challenge is. At the end of the day, this whole mindset caper, this whole overcoming adversity thing that we discuss about so often it's just one part of life we just got to manage it because that's what allows us to go out and experience life as we want to experience it to laugh and and love and and go to the beach and you know go flying (laughs) and hang out with family and do all those things that we want to do so um i think it's important to to really pack that mindset toolbox full of uh, life-changing
0: tools I really like what you just said about how you shouldn't compare your experiences. It's not a competition to see who's been through the toughest shit, right? Like, you know, as you said, a six year old falling and grazing their knee, you know, their, their pain and anguish is, is, you know, just as, as, um, as serious to them as, you know, someone who went through a life changing experience, like going to war, um, or, you know, being in an accident. So I, I, I love that sense of, you know, not, not comparing and just keeping, keeping an even perspective and, and temperament and just knowing that whatever you draw out of your experience, whatever lesson you take is, you know, the same and, and, you know, shouldn't be relative to anyone else's. 100%, 100%.
1: And, I mean, this idea of having a great mindset and being able to overcome and control all the things in your life is a learned and a uh, polished skill, we need to do it. We need to understand it. And we need to understand that we will never uh, be perfect at managing these day-to-day challenges. We merely just have to work at it every day. And honestly, the hard times have brought me some unbelievable lessons. I'm so lucky to be where I am right now and so passionate about helping others find that, uh, you know, sense of peace and confidence in their ability to tackle life.
0: For sure. For sure. I I, I couldn't agree with that more. And Ryan, I, I mean this genuinely. I, I I can see how you're such a, a successful professional keynote speaker. I think you have an incredible gift for communicating, for telling stories, and for inspiring people. I'm you know, I feel incredibly inspired by hearing about your journey and your mindset, and I know that everyone listening feels the same.
1: I appreciate it, Ricky. I really do. Just a normal Aussie kid. That's all that matters.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, This has been uh, a wonderful, very memorable conversation. Uh, To everyone listening, you can purchase Ryan Campbell's book, Born to Fly, on Amazon. I understand you also have a re-release of the book planned for this year? Well, it's actually out and live. It was live last week. So that
1: uh, copy that you'll find on Amazon is our new re-release. So we have uh, a little bit of new content and a forward from – Robert Hoot Gibson, uh, astronaut and uh, a a space shuttle commander. So uh, it's out and available right now.
0: Fantastic. And I know that my listeners also want to know where they can go to learn about your speaking opportunities and also to connect with you on the socials.
1: For sure. Absolutely. So we're really active on LinkedIn. You can find uh, me on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Uh, just with my name you can find the links through the website the website's www.ryancampbell.co it's not com i cannot afford the m yet it's (laughs) ryan campbell.co and we're presenting both virtual and eventually we'll be back to the live keynotes but we have a great uh, virtual live studio uh, that we've just launched so still available to present content not just here in the states but all over the world so excited to kind of help out any meetings keynotes events uh we are here to help.
0: Absolutely. Uh that's that's Flying Ryan and just make sure you're not catfishing him on Tinder. I'm sure <laughs> I'm I'm sure there's there's other people that you might want to impersonate. Nevertheless, thank you so much Ryan for joining me. This has been extremely enriching and enjoyable and, and you know it it's it's been a pleasure. You're yeah. a legend. Thanks, Ricky. So that was my conversation with Ryan Campbell. Um it was an incredibly heavy conversation to have. Um, but as I, you know, sort of said at the end there, it was inspiring, you know, to hear, you know, putting aside everything that happened after his plane crash, but inspiring to hear about a 17 year old kid or rather a 15 year old kid who, you know, set the goal of traveling around the world. And then a 19 year old kid who, you know, raised money in his computer and adorned his plane with the sponsor stickers to travel around the world in 70 days, totally by himself. I mean, to me that's a testament and a reminder that, you know, to all those listening out there, you know, you hear these stories of people who have the willpower and the drive and the tenacity to stick with their goals and and you know, like he said, you know, having to meet getting to meet Prince William and Buzz Aldrin and all those speaking engagements, really powerful stuff. And then obviously, you know, what what stuck with me after the accident was how he told his mom that he needed to harden up to in order to find the courage to move forward and eventually learn to walk again. And I think, you know, I'm fortunate I've never been through anything like that. And if you're listening, maybe, you know, maybe a lot of you haven't either. But after something like that, you know, an experience like that changes you. It changes you forever. And the only way to persevere is by getting stronger. And for some people, that progress happens every day. For Ryan, you know, flip the switch. He's, he's going to get harder, like, like he said. Um, and, and the last thing I'll say, you know, just to reiterate his points about gratitude and something I touched on in the episode is you really never know, you know, when a tragedy like that is going to strike. As, as, he, as he talked about, he'd been through the events of that morning, you know, so many times before and analyzed the accident and, you know, 20 seconds later, 15 seconds earlier, he would have been fine. But for some reason, you know, maybe you believe in religion or spirituality, for some reason, it didn't work out that way. And whether or not you believe that the universe has a plan and that everything happens for a reason, you just never know. You know, these these events are, are totally out of your control. And I would just implore you not to take every day for granted, you know, because the bitter reality is, you know, you could be in your car or on a plane or walking down the street and something like this could happen. And, and Ryan was obviously very fortunate, but others might not be. So that was just my biggest takeaway from, from the conversation in, you know, in that you, you, you just can't take the moment for granted and experiences and stories like, like Ryan's just serve as a reminder of that. Um, but it was a pleasure to talk to him you know, like I said, one of, if not the most inspiring conversations I've had on the podcast. And we'll see, you know, if the profiles, uh, the, 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 you know, these profiles end up becoming a more regular thing as opposed to the conversations usually where, you know, we talk about, where we talk about the flow state or the origin of comedy, what have you. It's also, th- this is sort of an aside, but it's funny that when I did the, when I made the decision to do Nervous Habits Reloaded and, change the style of the show and have guests every week and esteemed company, as I've had in the last couple of months, I mentioned in that Reloaded update that the episodes would probably be 30, 40 minutes. But if you look back in each and every one of these episodes, the conversations have spanned upwards of an hour. I think some of them have been an hour and a half. So I, I feel really lucky in the spirit of gratitude. I feel really lucky that everyone that I've spoken to um, in the last, what, like eight to 10 episodes has had so much incredible information to share and has taken time to talk to me and um, by extension talk to you guys and hopefully that continues because I I, you know I know as I said in the reloaded update I know some of you don't like the long episodes it's stressful you don't have the time yada 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 but for me I like I like recording the long episodes even though it's it's sort of a pain in the ass to edit you know an hour and 45 minutes of content but I like recording them and then you know, down the line, I like listening back and um, almost like like experiencing it for the very first time again. And and I also don't like cutting these conversations short. You know, Ryan had had some you know some brilliant messages to share, and I, I wouldn't have liked cramming that into a 30-minute conversation. I'm glad that we got that time. So I guess I just wanted to point that out. So next week we're sort of continuing in the spirit of flying. We actually go from flying Ryan to Jen on a jet plane that that would be next week's guest Jen Ruiz she's a best-selling author a TED speaker and a travel blogger that's Jen on a jet plane and she shares her advice for traveling around the world on a budget that's a that's a really fun conversation we go through a lot of the countries she'd been to you know best food worst food most overrated underrated et cetera, et cetera. I enjoyed that one a lot and that's coming up next week on Nervous Habits Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast on Twitter at NervousHabits underscore. Search for clips or full episodes on YouTube, search Nervous Habits Podcast. And as always, email the pod, NervousHabitspodcast at gmail.com, NervousHabitspodcast at gmail.com. And remember, in the words of Ryan Campbell, every time that our feet are detached from the surface of the earth, we should all be reflecting on life. Next time your commercial airline takes off, open your windows, take a peek outside, and look at what's out below. Take care and stay nervous.